This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi. And by a special guest, Shamim Samadi, who is the co-founder of Beeswax, and is working on some really exciting things in retail media. So he'll tell us about what's going on in retail media, as well as a lot of dishing about, you know, what a bad boss I was at Beeswax and stuff like that. So that should be fun. First, uh, just a quick promo. Um, so uh, Marketecture is now uh, working with many other podcasts in the ad tech and marketing space. And I want to give a shout out to Eric Suford, who's kind of the world's renowned expert in mobile advertising. His podcast, Mobile Dev Memo, has restarted. It used to publish intermittently, and starting today, it's available every week. Uh, you should listen to it because you'll never get more insights on mobile than through that podcast. But also, if you want to advertise on that podcast, give me a call because I am repping it because I am now an ad network salesperson in addition to uh, my various other activities. All right. Let's move on. Let's talk with Shamim. Shamim, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the pod. I haven't seen you in a long time. Yeah, it's been a few minutes. Ari and I sit next to each other, for those of you who don't know. so. But, you know, this is a, we don't get to talk for 30 minutes at a time, so this is a nice opportunity. This is basically going to be like sitting in our office listening to us uh, bitch and moan about ad tech, but, uh, but yeah. it's recorded and it's on Spotify. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, so Beeswax had three co-founders, Shamim, Ram, and I, uh, and Probably Shamim has a relatively low profile in the ad tech world, unless you were a Beeswax customer, in which case you think he's like the most important person on earth. If you've ever talked to anyone who used Beeswax, they're like, how's Shamim? Shamim's the best. He, without Shamim, my business would be screwed. Why, why do you keep such a low profile, Shamim? I don't know. It's a good question. I'm kind of, I kind of like the low, low profile. I'm not very sort of vocal on Twitter. I don't hit the conferencing like that much. You know, and I, I just like I like working like directly with customers. So typically, like one on one customer relationships that I've developed. I'm like the you know inside 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 ad tech. So if you're like inside at baseball, I'm like within that group. I'm like the next level. Shabim has a long history in ad tech. So he was uh, part of Marissa Meyer's famous APM program that was very storied, recruited into Google. He ran various Google ad tech products for many, many years before the DoubleClick and after the DoubleClick acquisitions, um, and uh, has really um, seen a lot through the years. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And we'll talk about some of that, because <laughs> you know, moving from the sort of Google world into DoubleClick in New York was, was a fun transition, which we can talk about later. Yeah, let's, let's jump into um, the topic du jour, which is retail media, because you've been very involved in the effort to uh, make retail media RTB compatible. Um, so why don't you tell us what you've been working on and what the status is of it? Yeah, so, you know, um, maybe backing up a little bit, post-Beeswax, I started a sort of incubator and consulting practice with Rom, who's the third co-founder and CTO. 
and we sort of, you know, incubating a couple ideas in ad tech and not in ad tech and consulting for a few ad tech CEOs. And in the process of, we looked deeply actually at retail media to see if we wanted to start something there. And one of the problems that became really clear was that there's very, as everyone knows, there's no standardization in retail media, which causes a bunch of problems for brands and, and retailers. And through my sort of like talking to folks in the space, I got connected with James Avery, CEO of Kevl, who also shared this like, why is this not standardized? It's crazy that we're, we still cannot like sort of transact programmatically in retail media. And he asked me to help him out. And so we started a a working group initially outside of the IAB to work on the sort of the standards around how sort of like the most, what I think is the most critical part of retail media, which is on-site product listing ads, has no standardization. So like, you know, people say retail media, they mean a lot of things. The, you know, kind of three buckets, if, if you don't mind me just walking through them, like you can use retail data to retarget on the open web and do DCO. That's like thriving and totally fine. I mean, of course, there's the deprecation of the cookie, but like that, that use case does not lack any standards. And then buying retail sort of like display ads on retail sites. So like post checkout, you're running a standard display ad. That's also fine. There's no sort of problems with the standards in the industry to do that. But the core use case of the sort of on-site product listing ad. So you're on, you know, Sephora, you're searching for makeup, you get a sponsored organic result. That's an on-site product listing ad. That thing is not standardized at all, which has resulted in all these retail media networks sort of each being on their own island and brands needing to use different software and like sort of the lack of interoperability. So, you know, we started a working group to solve that problem standardize the way retail media on-site product listing ads are transacted from the buy side and the sell side. And we just recently moved it under the IB and had our sort of first kickoff meeting yesterday, actually. So we could talk more through that, but that's kind of the the scope of it. So I want to talk a lot about that just to make sure we're talking about the same thing. When you're saying it's not standardized, are we talking about the creative format, the delivery, the reporting, or all of it? All of it, although there are there are initiatives underway to standardize the measurement of it. And so there is an IAB, there's, you know, a new sort of proposal actually around the measurement part. What this working group is working on is there's no standard way to sell. So like if you're a, if you're a retailer, you can't broadcast a bid request out to a bunch of buyers in a standard way. And you can't then like have demand sources compete, but none of the sort of standardization on the sell side is there to represent that as a thing. And you can't bid on it on the buy side. And let me give you this like a very specific example, like that on-site product listing ad, it's actually not a creative. It's literally the organic result on the retailer's site that's being boosted up because the brand has bidded on it. So there literally is no creative. Like you are telling the brand, hey, that SKU that you have and that I know about, I'm bidding on that SKU. But you're not giving them an ad to render. There's nothing, there's no native assets. It's like a, it's like a different thing. And this is why the retailers who've built retail media systems are effectively tying it in with their inventory systems and with all kinds of other proprietary technologies. It makes it a pretty hard problem. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's solvable. I think it's been, you know, overcomplicated in a way where it's like, oh, all the problems are solvable. And um, I'm very confident they can be solved. But yeah, traditionally, it's like, because there's no creative and it's tying into your product feed and inventory systems, like it has been a thing where you needed like a custom vendor to come in and, and handle it for you. So what's the future going to look like when this is standardized? Well, I guess what is, what's the outcome you expect from this working group? And then how does that benefit buyers and sellers? Yeah. So the outcome we expect is some updates to the open RTV protocol. You know, where it lives in the protocol might be part of native. It may be part of just the standard, but basically there'll be a, a new version of open RTB. And this, the, the hope is that this gets included so that if you are a, Let's just start on the retailer. So if you're a retailer, you could now work with an SSP or multiple SSPs who can handle sort of the sending out the bid requests. And you could, you know, those SSPs are now connected to DSPs. So you'd expect DSPs to update their, the way that, you know, some DSPs will say, hey, I want to participate in this retail media thing. They can update the way that they bid to connect into the supply. And then you'll have something that looks very similar to the rest of the sort of open web where you have, you know, retailers can have multiple demand sources now competing and managing yield. You have like sort of exchanges and SSP layer. And on the demand side, you would expect, so, you know, one of the problems on the demand side is if you're like L'Oreal, you have your DSP of choice and maybe Trade Desk, you know, whoever. And then you have this other software just to manage this retail media thing, you know, and they don't talk to each other. There's no shared budget. There's no shared targeting, reporting, et cetera. So the other thing you would expect is that DSPs and some of these sort of non-RTB companies like PacView and others to go in both directions. So like meaning you'd expect PacView to start to speak RTV. You'd expect the Trade Desk and other DSPs to start to integrate with this. And so a brand could have one platform. They could still, you know, decide to pick two and have best of breed, but you you'd expect brands to now be able to do everything on one one buy side platform. And do you think this will also bring non-endemic advertisers to product listing ads? I've talked about this on the pod before that I think there's an opportunity for non-endemic, so insurance, auto, et cetera, to get involved in this interesting inventory. I think so. I mean, there's kind of I'm of two two minds of this. Like you can the non-endemic stuff so if you're a retailer, generally, you don't love non-endemic because you're taking the, the user off-site and, and you're you know potentially cannibalizing e-commerce sales with the exception of sort of post-checkout. So if the user's already bought something, it's a good opportunity to you know show them something else that they may want to buy that you don't offer. But that said, I think you know retailers will get more sophisticated and you can imagine a world where there's sort of non-endemic brands competing with the endemic brands and and if a retailer does the sort of like the math and the yield math on like is this a likely user to convert maybe not maybe maybe it is worth sort of showing a non-endemic brand i think like i think it'll get there and this the standards will allow for that use case but i would bet it's like the more kind of nimble, maybe smaller retailers that go after that use case to begin with. Shumim, we, we've just 
gotten to to know each other like very recently. So um, I don't have a have a full you know, sort of grasp of of your style. But you're speaking about this like you know that it's like very matter of fact and very understated. To me, as an investor in Cavill and a bunch of retail media companies, like this is super exciting. It feels like this could like unlock a lot of value, a lot of spend. Do you feel that way? A and then B more sort of like more personally, you could work on anything right now. Like what attracted what attracted you to this problem, this project, this working group versus like starting another biz or, or something like that? And totally. maybe these, the the answer is the same. I don't know. Yeah, no, totally. I am definitely like an understated dude. Let's just start there. Like I don't get easily excited about anything really. Most things, my wife would agree with that. She's like, you know, I'm just like sort of even Steven. But no, I do think it it can actually fundamentally sort of change this ecosystem. The, The problem, because like I looked at it from a retailer's perspective to begin with, and you know the the current vendors are doing. Pridio and Promote IQ and Citrus, these are amazing companies doing great things. And I think, you know, they're going to transition into this open world as well. But like the opportunity for retailers to increase their their yield and to frankly have more control and own own the tech, own the user experience and be able to like control their own destiny. Like that's like really important. That's going to, that's part of what this does as opposed to the current world as I sort of outsource the whole thing and it's a black box to me and and yeah it works and I get I'm making you know I have a new high margin business but I can't really control it and I can't really add any secret sauce or control like the relevancy you know I, I just can't control that tech so that's on the retailer side I think it totally transform the way the way that they think about this and the fact that they can own it and on the demand side i think we talked through it it's just like it is so inefficient right now it's so incredibly inefficient and you can imagine a world where you know l'oreal is using a single platform sharing all its data all its bidding all its targeting and sort of think of this as an extension of how they just do programmatic so um it's now under the ib so uh Who's involved in this? Uh, what parties have committed to it, or is it too early for anyone to have committed to it? So the, it's a great working group. If you're interested in joining, we just kicked it off. We haven't publicized it broadly because we just did the kickoff. And if you're an IB member and you're interested, please reach out to the IB and get involved. But you know, it is kind of the who's who's who of like retail media in terms of vendors, like you know, including the trade desk, Kevil. Cody, Pridio, like, you know, the folks who are active in retail media are participating. And we'd love to get more retailers involved, particularly in sort of call. If you're if you are a large retailer and are interested in, in helping us sort of formalize this, we'd love to have you. Yeah, the trick is gonna be that the retail market is like fairly concentrated. Assume I I guess I'm gonna assume that Amazon's not gonna play nice for a while. Um, and then you have to get Walmart, Walgreens, a bunch of others to adopt this in some form. But that's been the case with every IAB standard um, since the beginning of time, more or less. Well, this is super interesting. Um, I want to transition to some other topics uh, for Shamim. Uh, let's talk Google first. So uh, I think you were you almost had the most longevity of before and after the DoubleClick acquisition in the Google Ads group. Um, there are lots of people who were involved in AdWords or AdSense, but 
you worked in AdSense, AdSense for video, you were doing rich media, then DoubleClick happened, and then you transitioned, you joined my team as part of the Google and worked on some lots of really interesting stuff. So maybe take us through how like Google's approach to advertising changed over those kind of critical years. You know, so like when I started, I was in Mountain View working on AdSense and actually some AdWords stuff as well, like product listing ads on AdWords. The sort of Google way of doing things, I mean, effectively, Google had built this amazing sort of software and business that, you know, kind of sold itself in a way. I, I know, like, that's not entirely true, but like there was not an enterprise. We weren't working with large publishers or large agencies. Right. It was like, you know, started from the ground up, small publishers, small advertisers, self-serve, like, you know, small budget, and then eventually moved up like into larger brands and agencies and sort of found its way. But that's not how it started. And so the product team, I'd say sort of overall, did not have like an enterprise customer focused thing. It was like very product. Like we don't even really talk to customers. Like, you know, customers are like, yeah, we talk to them. We have like this one event we do a year and we sort of talk to them on the panel, but we're not like in there. There's also like a hostility towards agencies. The agencies were seen as, you know, middlemen who should be avoided. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was, you know, why, why do they exist? They shouldn't exist. You know, we were going to go directly to the advertiser. So there was not an appreciation for agencies or there was like literally no touch points with really large publishers, really. Right. It was just sign up on AdSense and make some money on your remnant inventory. That was kind of the approach. Yeah. Here's a tag, like run it. And like it worked really well for that segment. You know, I think people talk about this, but like the, you know, then, you know, I was in Mountain View for a long, uh, a while and I moved to New York sort of post double quick acquisition. It's just like night and day in terms of, let's just say like culture, like product culture, business culture, where now it's like the sales team, the product team, it's like enterprise sales. You're going into the top 20 publishers, top agencies in the world. You're sell- selling them enterprise software. You have to like deeply integrate integrate with them. So like everything from sales to product to support, everything was like totally different and completely foreign. And there was like a, frankly, like a clash for sure in terms of like the views of the world, like the double click view of the world and the Google view of the world. But like, that's what was great about the acquisition was like the cultural exchange. And it went Definitely. both ways. With that double click, Google probably would have been stuck in this like, self-serve we're not talking to enterprises for like a long time yeah i mean immediately people don't remember this but Um, immediately before the acquisition closed google announced their ad server which was called gam um and it was very much meant for small business it's it's currently it's basically turned into what's now i think called gam small business or something like that um but google was trying to go up market um but they really the dna there was all self-serve all automation and it was great that that also infected the double-click culture. The double-click culture got much more technical, much more scalable, started to think a lot bigger than it had when it was an independent company. Yeah, totally. And as a product manager, all of a sudden you're being pulled into like enterprise customer meetings and you're like, what the hell's going on? Like, you know, what is my role here, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that's where we learned a lot so, from the double-click folks. So you were given a choice to work for me. Uh, after the acquisition, what was your other choice? You had a different option, right? Yeah. So part of the, this is a funny story. Part of the APM program that Ari mentioned 
it's a two-year rotation. You work on one product, then you rotate the second year to a different product. I was in Mountain View and I, I met with Ari. He like pitched me on this like rich media thing. Like we're running these crazy ads. They're, they're awesome. It's going to like change the world. I was like, this, this is, seems interesting. And then my second sort of meeting was with Sundar, Sundar Pichai, who's now CEO of Google, who at that point was like pretty much Ari's level, I think. He's like a group PM, maybe a director. And I met with him and he's like, yeah, join my team. We're doing this like great, this great thing. And, and I chose Ari, which is like a hilarious. Uh, you Both know, of our careers it, have been know, pretty crappy you know, since then. Like, <laughs> compared to Sundar. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the rest is history, right? The rest is history, yeah. You know, I don't know if folks remember there was an app <laughs> called Yo. Remember the Yo app? Like, it, it literally it just, you could just Yo someone. That's how Ari and I, that's how, I think I Yo'd Ari or Ari Yo'd me. And that was like, that was the thing that instigated, like, hey, let's like chat. And Ari came to me with, with the idea of beeswax, which I should, I want to ask you about, but all right, go ahead. Let me the from there. Hot seat. So, you know, rewind eight years, like, and I think this is still relevant now at the time, everyone was like, this DSP market is like, it's done, figure it out. There's like a million DSPs. Like you want to do what you want to create a new demand side platform like now. Like I, you know, I had that thought a little bit and like, I'm sure you got that a lot. So what was it, what was your thinking at the time? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'll contrast the buy side and the sell side. Um, I definitely saw the sell side as a less attractive area for innovation and I still think it is. Um, first of all, publishers are very promiscuous. They use many, many vendors and they don't treat their vendors like enterprise software. They treat them like monetization opportunities. So there's no stickiness. There's no opportunity to build a long, uh, a long lasting kind of SaaS business. Whereas the buy side has enormous amount of diversity of budgets, of capabilities, of objectives, of geography, and they treat their vendors a little bit more like SaaS vendors where they want to have a preferred DSP, a preferred CDP, et cetera. So I always found the buy side more attractive. I think that still holds. Even with consolidation, um, there are always people on the buy side who want to innovate and are willing to look at different technology to enable them to do that. With regard to the specific opportunity, I had uh, spent two years at AppNexus as a head of product there, and I was very enamored of AppNexus's pitch to the market, which was, we're a platform on which you build your ad tech innovation. That's a great pitch. But I didn't feel like they executed the pitch. There was a lot of dissatisfaction among the customer base that they felt like the company, AppNexus, which was a great company, but it really fell down on the promise of being letting people build on it. Uh, the documentation was bad. The pricing was weird. The contracts were long. It just didn't feel like software. And so that was kind of the specific opportunity I saw was effectively to out AppNexus, AppNexus. And it turns out, funny funny story is that when we went head to head, AppNexus was a really tough competitor. We didn't flip that much business from AppNexus. We ended up flipping enormous amount of business from IP on web um, and really just like act, almost routing them in the buy side market. And probably a lot of our customers were either former IP or considering IP, whereas the AppNexus customers ended up being kind of sticky. And what what lesson would you give sort of current current entrepreneurs who are in ad tech right now? It's a kind of the same story. There's a there's a narrative right, right now which is like everything's been figured out in ad tech. So like what did you do that like 
made it work that maybe is transferable to current folks thinking about starting well, an ad tech? We differentiated startup. ourselves. I think it was very clear to our potential customers why we were different. It was that whole platform first. We invented the uh, the trademark uh, bitter as a service, and it was one of those kind of magical trademarks where as soon as you said it, the customer knew what you were offering entirely. Um, and some people said, "Well, we're also a bitter as a service, but we have the trademark." Uh, so, um, so being focused, finding the niche, finding the customers that that really want what you have, and just focusing on them works. Um, one of the good things about creating ad tech startups is that. There's a lot of money, um, a lot of revenue potential because customers are actively spending money. Um, and so if you find the right use case, they'll try you. They'll give you trial budgets. They'll uh, send money your way and you can scale things pretty quickly. I would suggest that given the maturity of ad tech, you should stay away from sort of broad-based platform type of, type of businesses. I think that game is difficult, if not over. Uh, and I think that was one of the flaws of Beeswax was we tried to be too broad um, didn't focus that much. If I was doing it again, I probably would have done some things differently and maybe just focused on CTV because that's where we got the most traction anyway. What else? So maybe focusing on CTV, what else would you have done differently? Yeah. The biggest thing was that we had our game plan from day one, and you can I, I can share our like pre-seed deck, and it said this. Our game plan was to start with the insiders, the ad tech professionals, and sell to really other ad tech companies, sort of like, you know, Eric's portfolio of companies would be our target list. And then phase two of the company was to go for marketer direct and to take advantage of the in-housing trend. That was always the game plan. VCs loved that game plan because it got us to revenue and then also had a very big TAM. And uh, three, four years later, post our B round was time to like take the second step to go marketer direct. And it turns out that was a terrible strategy, uh, that the marketer direct business didn't exist. Um, those mar While people were in-housing, they were largely in-housing in sort of hybrid fashions where the agencies were still involved. And the number one product requirement of in-housers was not integration, which we thought it would be. It was ease of use and simplicity because they had very little staff. So the in-housing movement happened, but it largely benefited Google and Trade Desk, even more so than the previous generation. What we should have done is after our sort of late A, early B round, is we should have pivoted to be a complete solution for kind of walled garden wannabes. Um, so retail media, publishers who wanted to have a bidder and a supply side integration, stuff like that. We were being asked for that all the time. And I would come to you, Shamim, and I'd be like, hey, we need to build a header bid integration. And you'd be like, nope, nope, not on the roadmap, not going to happen. So so that's, that's what happened. <laughs> it's a true story, right? Yeah, so that's on me. The uh, the tricky part, I mean, I agree with everything you said. The tricky part was that the marketer segment, there's enough like green shoots with marketers that like you have a couple of customers, they're like starting to grow and then you we bet on it. So we weren't like making it up. But that's like one of the trickier things when you're going into a new segment is like you don't want to just, you know, have a couple of early adopters. You really got to go deeper into the that customer segment. One, one of the things I tell entrepreneurs is that um, you have to cross the chasm in each segment. 
Eric Sufer talks about this a lot in, uh, as well, that there's uh, the early group of customers or what he calls the golden cohort, which is that you attract the most attractive customers right away. And then the second cohort is not going to be as good in, in user acquisition. But I think in like SaaS or enterprise, it's also the fact that the early adopters are very unlike the mainstream ones. And if you have success with one kind of customer, you should not assume that you're going to have the same success with the second kind of customer. Right. One more follow up. So like, how do you think, for those of you who don't know, like Ari is an expert in positioning and product marketing, like one of its like superpowers. So what was the fact that like our early positioning, like take our early positioning and early pricing, and then like going to a new segment, like advertisers or agencies? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the things that Beeswax did really well was we had innovative pricing. Uh, we had um, we priced our bidder on a QPS basis, so queries per second. The customers would tell us what QPS they wanted, and that would determine the monthly fee. There's actually a video of Terry Kawaja talking about how stupid it is. It's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> he didn't mention us by name, but he he basically went on stage. It was like, some people want to charge by QPS. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Anyway, um, so... Um, it, but it was super smart because um, the customers in that first cohort, the early adopting ad tech people, they were comparing our solution to building it themselves. They had engineers who were like, well, this is how many servers I'll need. This is how much bandwidth I'll need to build my own bidder. And we spoke that language and said, no, actually, it's cheaper if you do it with us. We give you the exact same thing you're going to build yourself. Then we go to the uh, second market, the marketer directs, and we had – as. As Shamim said, we uh, we had signed Uber as a customer and DraftKings, and we had a bunch of marketers who did use us. They had no interest in QPS-based pricing. They liked flat pricing, but they didn't want it to be based on QPS. They wanted it to be based on the amount they spent. So they, it was a sort of a nuanced conversation. They would say, well, we're paying the trade as 10%. We'd love it to be lower with you guys and flatter, but it has to be based on what we spend, You know, making it based on we don't even understand what QPS is. And it was very hard for us to get out of our own way to have a totally different pricing model because our costs were all kind of built in based on our pricing model. And so we would have these convoluted contract conversations with weird schedules of how we we're going to charge in different situations. And that was just, you know, in retrospect, that was just a, you know, a flashing red signal that we were on the wrong track, uh, that we we're trying to sell a product that was positioned wrong for a new market. And we probably, if we wanted to go market direct, we should have blown it up. We should have blown up the sales approach, blown up the marketing, start effectively started a new, a new approach entirely. So uh, I think uh, I think probably we should call it on this conversation. You know, it, people can always like buy me a beer and hear me talk about beeswax for hours. Um, <laughs> so no need to do the podcast. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk about the news of the week, lots of earnings news uh, and some interesting stuff going on with AI. So give us a moment. Marketecture is brought to you by Pontiac Intelligence. Pontiac Intelligence is a demand side platform designed for running high quality CTV campaigns. With its proprietary bidder and a focus on privacy safe era, Pontiac brings clear and powerful differentiation from the crowded DSP space. Transparent, low-tech fees, accurate forecasting, and the ability to manage thousands of simultaneous campaigns with ease. See a demo and learn more at Pontiac.media. That's Pontiac.media. Uh, News of the Week, a lot of earnings stuff. Um, Eric, do you want to uh, run through any of the more interesting earnings announcements that you've seen? Yeah, um, I think it was last week or the week before. It was Google and Facebook, um, and those were those were, I think, super exciting earnings, um, particularly on on Facebook with the growth and where the growth was coming from as it relates to um, 
to AI um, with this class over the course of the past week or so. It was the uh, it was kind of the pure play ad tech companies. So IS, uh, and then last night you had a slew. You had Innovid, uh, Pubmatic, and Magnite. With the exception of IAS, you know, like really focused on on Pubmatic and, and Magnite, things were um, things were kind of flat. The stocks were up, uh, Pubmatic in particular, because I think the expectations. Um, were more muted than the overall delivery, but yeah, I mean, o- overall versus some of the the, the big platforms, um, things were uh, things were kind of flat, with the exception of IAS, which was which was up nineteen percent. I think the interesting thing again on on Pubmatic and and, and Magnite is so uh, Brian Weezer, friend of the pod, says the market will be up five percent this year. You know, we saw like Facebook, and you know, if you dive into Google, like wh- where their growth is coming from, they're they're you know, certainly growing at an accelerated pace. Pubmatic revenue was down slightly. Magnite revenue was up three percent. So if you look at like their business and, and overall, like what drives their business, it's right. a little bit of more of the same of you know the big platforms and you know the leaders in AI are taking share and taking share at accelerated pace, and you know the. Standard display stuff, or you know, just like publishers um, are uh, are losing share. So that was the big takeaway for me. Yeah, I, I think that is uh, definitely a question mark around the stocks of Pomatic and Magnate. Um, regarding IAS, they were up. Revenue was up nineteen percent, so that's a really nice print there. But they mentioned that publisher revenue, which is uh, at least half of uh, Publica, uh, was flat. So you know, the publisher side of this is, is very mature. I think at this point, everyone's got an answer or everyone's got exchanges and now they're fighting for share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I will note that Pubmatic said that their SPO was up 45%. So like overall revenue flat, but you know, you're seeing like this share shift towards, you know, where, where, the, where the money is obviously. And it's, you know, either SPO or, or building buy side uh, capabilities. Um, and then Innovate had a, had a beat and raise. Um, I'm excited about that as a long-suffering Innovate shareholder. Uh, but like, you know, it's always good for video, uh, for ongoing growth in connected TV. I think separately from the uh, internet, ad techs, pure plays, there was a lot of bad news in the television business. Uh, the, a lot of kind of disappointing numbers and disappointing discussion from all the leaders in the traditional television business. I won't go through each one. But it was very. Seems like it's a very downbeat situation. And Brian Weiser has also talked about maybe twenty four being the year that really television suffers. Traditional television and things like CTV and streaming, which have long been growing, really take over. So uh, let's talk about um, Amazon has a new format that prints money. Um, so they are offering a video format that is called targeted pre-sold ad slot splitting. Uh, <laughs> do you want to explain this? <laughs> Quite a name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, in, in plain English, um, it's like audience targeted, uh, TV ads. So like with network, uh, television advertising, uh, marketer will just, um, you know, buy uh, a slot and that's the slot that gets delivered. Like regardless of you know who you are, where you live, so on and so forth. With Amazon, what they're doing is um, using audience data, um, using their own data um, to sell slots that then have a different message based on Shamim versus Ari versus Eric versus versus anybody else. So I think it's like the beginnings of you know showing the capabilities around like really what digital can do um, to TV advertisers. Um, there was two products, but the one that you just described, Ari, was the one that seems to drive you know the, the bulk of this early 
kind of hundred million well. in revenue this year. They're claiming for this product that no one's ever heard of. Yeah, and it, and that's nothing for them. And I think it just shows, like, hey, you know, try try a new format, try a new product. Boom, you have a hundred million dollar business. Shamim, uh, like, how many how many times did Google spin up a product called AdSense uh, for video? And how many times were you involved in it? Because it was definitely well, more than two, I think. Yeah, I was the first one on it. I think this was back pre like Google bought YouTube. This is like in two thousand five or something like that. Like we had, we didn't have YouTube. We had AdSense, and we had an idea of like let's go to you know publishers and like get them to run our demand. The problem was we had no video demand. One of the first things right. I launched, which is you know. Um, you guys are going to hate me for this. Were the tech, text ads on top of videos that we we ended up running on on YouTube. Post YouTube acquisition was actually really important for early days YouTube monetization because we had sort of like we had the sponsorship, but then we didn't have video demand, and we had the crazy idea of let's just like take our text demand and do some speech to text targeting and like show some text ads, and it worked like pretty well for a long time. Those are those weird little overlays that look like AdSense ads on top yeah, yeah. of videos. Yeah. How big of a business was that, Shmim? You know, like hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, like not um, most of it on YouTube. Tiny for right. Google, right? It was not, didn't like hit billions, but like, you know, it was, was critical for YouTube. You know, it's one of those. And another example unrelated to, to video, just like piggybacking on this Amazon thing, like the number of times the PM on AdSense could just generate an incremental 500 million like dollars of revenue by changing the color of the text or like the the layout of the AdSense format like these little tweaks there was a team whose entire job was like experiment on tweaking the formats to get better advertiser and publisher results and you could squeeze a lot out of like simple changes um, at, at scale was that Jens? Was that the guy's name? It was different um, different people at different times. But yeah, he was he was okay. he was one. Yeah. They would just change the font size by like 0.1 and suddenly make a hundred million dollars. It was crazy. Yeah. Colors, um, all of it. But video is the hard is the hard nut to crack. If you don't have the video content, video advertisers, getting into that market is so challenging. Um and I think that's something that Google really s- struggled with until they ended up having the Goliath of YouTube to kind of make it all work. So um, interesting stuff. Um, another walled garden piece of news. Um, not really any surprise here, but Google's PMAX has rolled out generative AI for creatives. I think this is kind of the natural evolution where all the walled gardens are are the first to really make AI work uh, because they have all the data, all the creative, all the all the conversions, all the AI, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think Amazon also rolled out. We don't have it in the show notes, but if I remember correctly, Amazon rolled out. AI that helps your uh, actual product photos look better. Um, so you could put it on in more interesting backgrounds or clarify the lighting and stuff like that. Um, another example where they have all the data to see if it works and get that feedback. I guess the big question I've been asked this multiple times just this week is like, will independent ad tech have enough data to compete with these walled gardens if everything moves to AI? Um, either you guys want to take a stab at that one? Uh, I think short answer is yes, um, but not in the same way that, you know, clearly independent ad tech doesn't have the uh, owned data to be able to do this stuff. So I think like with many successful business models, um, it ends up being a picks and shovel. 
type of thing where they're going to build um, the capabilities for perhaps marketers to train on their own data. Or if they've got like a massive third-party data set that they sit on top of companies like uh, Yobi, our, our portfolio company, I think you probably could get close to what a walled garden data set is, um, but they're going to play a different game. Um, and I think a lot of the, it, it's more of a capability game than necessarily being able to go head to head with. Yeah, Yobi was the subject of one of the Justify Your Existence interviews, very interesting company. Yeah, I think I think this whole question about how much data is enough and how can you specialize is really important. Uh, to give one example from uh, architecture, we have our AI bot that answers questions about ad tech. We're now on our second vendor. We had a first vendor who went out of business. Second vendor is doing this. I'm not that thrilled with the results. Uh, you can tell me if you try it out on our marketecture.tv. And this week, OpenAI announced that they are they've launched private GPTs. So, uh, example of where a big I guess they're an incumbent at this point, can kind of um, flex its muscles and potentially put startups out of business. Uh, and I, I just wonder how much of that's going to happen in, in ad tech over the next couple of years. It's not just, yeah, but, you know, the, it's like that's not the only use case for the generative AI stuff. Business Insider had, you know, one of their cool lists uh, last week, whereas a dozen companies like using generative AI in interesting ways for advertising and marketing applications. And, you know, they highlighted a handful of, of our portfolio companies and it's like, you know, Rembrandt is using generative AI to uh, build uh, product placements in videos. And, you know, Gray Swan is using generative AI to find like ad operations anom anomalies. So I think this is like interesting tech that is going to be used just, you know, beyond what I think these initial walled, walled garden use cases are. And it ultimately becomes everything. Sure. Are those portfolio maybe companies of yours? Yeah, this should send in my way. Justify your existence. I need new uh, interviewees. Full disclosures. I was just going to add, I mean, one one way this could play out is just more, the power dynamic moves more to the, the sell side, publisher side. We have first party data. So like everything, like everything's been moving slowly, slowly, buy side sort of has, has had the power. And with cookie deprecation, signal loss, and generative AI, where you're sitting on like first party data sets, like one thing I think you'll see is that the publishers start to take back some of that that control, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So uh, a follow-up news item uh, that I found interesting. So um, a long time ago, so we're on one of our earlier pods, uh, so we talked about Sovereign. Uh, Sovereign is a uh, sort of a publisher suite of products, including an SSP that focuses on long-tail publishers, blogs, and things like that. Um, and the interesting news back then was that they are were offering a zero-fee SSP because they basically bundled the SSP fee into all their under, other fees. And the reason that I thought that was interesting was because if you have no fee, then SPO should benefit you quite a bit uh, because there's no incremental cost. Of, more, more of the advertiser dollars should get to the publisher than it should through other paths. Um, so the follow-up is that they put out a pr press release saying how great they are, and I'm just going to report on it, which is um, their study showed that it, the zero-fee SSP resulted in a 16% higher take rate and a 35% higher revenue for publishers. Um, so, um, that's their data, their press release, you could believe it or not, but I think it, uh, it makes sense logically to me that having a bundled SSP fee would have a big SPO positive effect. And it could play out long, you know, short term and then longer term when advertisers see that their working media is going further, you'd expect budgets to like keep going their way. Yeah. Advertisers may see better results, better value for their money on these sites and then start benefiting them. So it's, it's interesting. And I, 
it, it kind of opens the question about whether some SSPs should think about other ways to charge or compete. Um, the dream of charging a SaaS fee for an SSP is kind of a, not going to happen. Publishers just don't seem interested in paying like a fixed SaaS fee. But, you know, you could imagine a world where a like a video player company like JW or or Brightcove um, integrates their SSP for free in some way. Um, so uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll call them up and see if they think that's a good idea. Um, all right. So we covered a lot of ground here. This is an awesome episode. I think we'll call it here. Eric, always a pleasure. Jim, thank you so much for being here. I will see you in the office in about 10 seconds. <laughs> see you soon. Thank you. I, I feel left out. Thank yeah. you, guys. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.